This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu. Good evening and welcome to The Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Zubeda, your host for today. The second wave of the coronavirus pandemic is raging in India. Hospitals are overflowing, oxygen is in short supply in some parts of the country, patients are prescribed with a number of drugs and patients' relatives are desperately looking for drugs that are also running short in some cases. What works in the treatment for COVID-19 and what should our treatment protocol be? Does plasma therapy work? Are drugs like remdesivir useful? And what will happen if the many antibiotics taken now lead to antimicrobial resistance in the future? To speak to us about this, we have Dr. Anup Agarwal, the lead author of the ICMR-led trial on convalescent plasma therapy and a physician at Rahubath McKinley Christian Hospital Healthcare Services in New Mexico, United States. Good afternoon, Dr. Anup Agarwal, and welcome to the Hindus In Focus podcast. Thank you. Doctor, in the face of the crushing second wave of COVID-19, doctors in India are prescribing an assortment of drugs like antibiotics, antivirals and steroids even for mild cases. Various state government recommendations for home care include an array of drugs from ivermectin to zinc tablets. Is this polypharmacy approach necessary and where will it take us? Uh, in my opinion, for mild cases, I don't think any drugs are necessary other than symptomatic treatment such as paracetamol or levocetrizine. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't recommend anything for patients. Polypharmacy is dangerous mostly. We have a, we have a problem with antimicrobial resistance in India uh, where we have the NDM bug from before and such kind of polypharmacy where everyone is prescribing either ivermectin or doxycycline or azithromycin or a combination of these drugs, they will only increase the problem of antimicrobial resistance. And we won't have antibiotics to treat regular infections. Right. Doctor, uh, moving on, social media even now has so many desperate cries of plasma for COVID-19 care. You were the lead author of the ICMR-conducted study on convalescent plasma therapy for COVID-19 care that concluded that neither, neither did the therapy reduce progression of mild cases to severe, nor does it have any impact on mortality. The ICMR continues to recommend it subject to certain caveats in the early stage of the disease, but anecdotal evidence tells us that treating doctors are continuing to prescribe it for severe disease. Can you set the record straight on the effectiveness of plasma therapy? Our trial and multiple other trials have shown that plasma doesn't work. Uh, I don't know why ICMR continues to recommend it. They asked us what should we do and we had categorically said, no, we should not recommend it. There was a meeting of the NTF where they themselves decided that they shouldn't recommend it. And then I think they spoke to the ministry or something happened and then they backtracked and they still continue to recommend it. A lot of the decision making in ICMR or National Task Force is not evidence-based, but eminence-based. Some big shot doctor 
or some some doctor will come and and they can like they will basically scare everyone and say that we will leave the committee or things like that and these these weird recommendations continue so this scramble for plasma is based most on mostly on hope and not on evidence there is definitely no evidence of any kind regarding convalescent plasma it only works when given in the first 3 days which is based on a small study from argentina of less than 200 patients now in india currently it takes more than 3 days to even get a pcr test result so so in india in the current situation plasma is definitely not helpful it creates a lot of problems the resources of the health system are strained and rather than using them for beneficial treatments like steroids anticoagulants and oxygen families are scrambling for for plasma and and people are suffering because of that uh, so i think and our politicians have not done a good job by promoting plasma everywhere so i think the politicians the policy makers and these people who formulate guidelines they should get their act together and say that it doesn't work so that people stop scrambling for them families are already very desperate and and to to have them scramble for a therapy which has no benefit is kind of cruel could you tell us a little bit about the icmr study in itself doctor yeah i, I remember exactly 24th march i was called by the dgicmr to see if plasma could be a good option i was working at icmr then he asked me if plasma could be a good option uh, and then we had a meeting with a few blood bank specialists uh, in in delhi and then we thought oh we should do a trial so then we had two major questions in front of us should we do a trial or should we just allow plasma because it had been used in previous epidemics but when we looked at the evidence there was no conclusive evidence from any of the previous epidemics whether it was the 1918 swine flu or the sars epidemic or the mers epidemic uh, none of them had any any evidence to suggest that plasma works so icmr took a stand even though mr kejriwal was going around saying that plasma works icmr took a stand and said oh we want we will do a trial and plasma should be used only in clinical trials we enrolled 464 patients half of them got plasma the other half did not and we made sure that everything else was similar in both those groups so basically the only difference between the two groups was that one group got plasma and the other group did not so if plasma were to save lives the people who got plasma they would have lived longer but what we saw in our trial that there was no difference between the two groups in terms of mortality or in terms of progression to severe disease so basically we concluded that it does not work and similarly ours was a small study of 464 patients but very conclusive uh, and well respected across the world and then later there was a larger trial in the uk of more than 10000 patients and they also came with a similar result so i don't know why we still continue to advocate for plasma 
Dr. Speaking of the ICMR, there has been some uh, criticism that the guidelines haven't been updated as frequently as they should. Do we need more frequent updates because of the changing nature of the pandemic and uh, for treatment protocols? I mean, honestly, only three or four drugs work in uh, work in COVID nineteen, right? Uh, the first is steroids. So ICMR did update their guidelines uh, when when the trial about steroids came. The second is anticoagulants. They all, always had anticoagulants in their uh, in their protocol. And the third is oxygen, and they had that also. Now people can debate about tocilizumab because it is showing some benefit in some groups. I think more than updating their guidelines regularly, it should be about that they should be recommending what should be recommended. They're recommending all sorts of things, and I think that's where the problem lies, like recommending ivermectin in the latest guidelines, which is very weird. They continue to write methylprednisolone instead of dexamethasone, which is a much more expensive drug, although that is methylprednisolone will work as good as dexamethasone. They continue to recommend remdesivir uh, in, in a certain population, although their own trial, which they were part of, the WHO Solidarity trial, that showed that remdesivir does not reduce mortality. So if it does not reduce mortality, why make people spend thousands of rupees? Yeah. So I think more than updating them regularly, they continue to recommend medications which are probably not beneficial. Speaking of ivermectin, uh, doctor, that's another drug that is part of home treatment guidelines in several states. In fact, home care kits distributed by several state governments contain this drug, even though the WHO and the European Medicines Agency have advised against it. Uh, The ICMR is recommending both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for home care and prophylactic use. Is this low certainty of evidence is this slow evidence threshold good enough for what is now effectively over-the-counter drugs in India? No, I, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. So if you look at the ground, people are paying a lot of money to buy ivermectin because it, it is in shortage. And it probably does not have any benefit or not probably. It definitely does not have any benefit. So, so they shouldn't be recommending it. I, I don't know what their thought process is. One could be that, oh, as as people who are making guidelines, we should be prescribing something. We cannot leave patients on their own, but that is very patriarchal. Uh, or I, I don't know what their thought process is, but there is definitely, it is not evidence-based and that should be the only thought process. What is happening is, Doctors in the private sector, in the government sector are recommending these medications and patients are scrambling to find them because everything is in short supply. So instead of recommending multiple things, we should be focusing our energies again and again on on things that work, which is oxygen and oxaparin or blood thinners and, and dexamethasone. And that's about it. You also spoke of remdesivir, doctor. And right now, this month, Indian manufacturers are set to produce 300,000 vials of this drug in a situation where the demand is still outstripping the supply. You spoke about patients and their relatives scrambling to find these drugs. 
The WHO has directed against its use, though both the FDA and the EMA have granted it approval with conditions. Uh, could you tell us why um, uh, international guidelines are at variance with regard to this and what studies have shown us that it can at best reduce the duration of hospital stay if administered within a narrow clinical window? So, so I think the first thing is when you look at a drug and when you look at a disease, you not we not only look at the evidence, but what is going on in the country. So in regards to remdesivir, the first trial that came out was ACT-1, ACTT-1. It was published in New England Journal of Medicine. And that trial said, that trial looked whether it reduced hospital duration or not. And it reduced hospital duration by four days, which is, which is pretty impressive. Now, in the U.S., where the trial was done, hospitals stay costs a lot of money. It's thousands of dollars. So giving a drug which is much cheaper than the hospital stay itself, it's good. It's very good. But you cannot take that evidence back to India. Our hospital stay and the cost of remdesivir cannot be compared. A hospital stay in a government hospital is 1100 rupees for a day. But remdesivir costs around 40,000 rupees, 50,000 rupees in the black market. So the cost of remdesivir is much more higher. So I would want to stay four days more in the hospital than pay such a steep price. Now, that was the ACT-1 trial done in the U.S. There was a much bigger trial done across 30 countries or 25 countries, the solidarity trial. It was done in more than 400 hospitals. The sample size was much bigger. India had around 900 patients in that trial. So that trial would be more appropriate for the Indian setting. I wouldn't look at the American trial data when we have a trial in our own country. That trial showed that remdesivir did not save lives. So I would go with that and be like, okay, our main problem right now is saving lives. So let if something does not save lives, let us not waste our money. We are already asking for funds from across the world. So why waste our money, important money on a drug that does not save lives? Let, let us spend our money, our supply chains, all our resources, all our manufacturing prowess on, on medications and interventions that work, which is oxygen, dexamethasone or steroids and anticoagulants, which is anoxaparin. So we should be spending our resources on those things rather than remdesivir where we saw that it does not work, it does not save lives, and it cannot be definitely given equitably, whatever you try. Doctor, you spoke to us about trials conducted in other parts of the world for certain drugs or treatment protocols. Uh, do we have the necessary trials in India to show us what treatment protocols work, or are our treating doctors in India seeing something that the studies internationally don't capture? So unless you do a trial based on just your empiric clinical evidence on what you see can be very misleading. See, if I see a patient and I give them, if I see 10 patients and I give them all ivermectin and they all get better, I can start thinking that ivermectin works. It doesn't necessarily mean that. 
uh, it means that they all probably just got better and ivermectin was just a red herring you never know that so unless you do trials it is hard to know what works and what doesn't and that's why we have the scientific methodology and india honestly has done a good number of trials is just that they are not respecting their own evidence like we were participating in the solidarity trial we did the plasma trial uh so 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 we, we should start respecting that uh yeah the problem is the problem is that there is an urge to prescribe more than to prescribe rationally could you speak to us a little bit more about that doctor many doctors have uh, come out and said that they are under a lot of pressure to prescribe certain forms of treatment uh, especially when uh, in a situation where patients relatives are panicking uh, due to the number of cases and deaths in the country so i think i, I think there are many parts to it right one is one is it's easy to blame the patient that they're asking for something if you talk to the patient and communicate to them i think a good number of them will start respecting what the doctor says so that's that's first part but the second and the bigger part is is that we have a highly privatized health system we have a health system where where 70 more than 70% of the health system is in the private sector now how does the private sector make money it makes money by hospital stay it makes money by prescribing more so the private sector will always prescribe more they will always prescribe methylprednisolone which is a much expensive drug rather than dexamethasone uh they will always prescribe enoxaparin much more than heparin which is much more expensive people are getting all sorts of very strong and expensive antibiotics which are not needed covid is a viral disease not a bacterial disease but a lot of doctors give these strong antibiotics for long durations saying that oh we are trying to prevent any any chance of a bacterial pneumonia but that's not good practice we already have so much antimicrobial resistance in our country now what this has led to also additionally is a lot of patients who were diabetics got long duration of steroids strong antibiotics which creates perfect storm for a mucor mycosis to occur and all across the country doctors are seeing cases of fungal infections in covid recovered patients there is no data on this right now but there are definitely news reports that mucor mycosis is occurring and there is a outbreak of mucor mycosis in covid recovered patients doctor uh, going to your previous point about the indiscriminate use of antibiotics this has been identified as a public health threat in india and antimicrobial resistance containment is a national program studies are showing that there's increasing microbial resistance to even new drugs could you tell us that in what way an increase in antimicrobial resistance will impact our infectious diseases burden in the future you you will have like small problems will become big problems very soon we will return to the 1940s when we did not have antibiotics so a lot of the cancer treatment is is dependent on antibiotics because when a person is getting treated for cancer they get chemotherapy which which weakens their immune system and these patients are very prone to infections and we depend on antibiotics then to treat 
those those infections and make sure the cancer patients live longer. But if our antibiotics stop working, the chemotherapy won't be of any use because you give chemotherapy, patients get infected and there is no treatment. Similarly, surgery, general surgery, in post-op infections, there is a chance that uh, the antibiotics won't work. So all the advancement in surgery will go down the drain if antibiotics don't work. A lot of patients will suffer from that. Doctor, zinc, vitamin C and various kinds of multivitamins are also part of COVID care for mild disease in India. Uh, is there any downside to this, even as the evidence for their use in COVID-19 treatment is patchy? No, I, I don't think there is any downside to it, except that it costs money. Right. So is it it's expensive yeah, for me? Ours is a poor country at the end of the day, right? Majority, there is a good percentage of the population below poverty line. People spend a lot of money to buy these very regular drugs, which we don't think there is a downside medically, but economically there is a downside. Lastly, why do you think, what do you think should be the role of professional bodies of doctors and clinicians in India to ensure that correct data, evidence and treatment protocols are disseminated amongst the fraternity? Has this been lacking uh, during COVID? I, I think there are two parts to this answer. So the first part is doctors and healthcare providers are right now busy to look for all the evidence, to go through all the research and, and do evidence-based treatment themselves. So they look up to guidelines which are made by professional bodies. I think these professional bodies can be more responsible so professional bodies need to do this? Yes, professional bodies should be doing this. Uh, like in the US, you have something called the IDSA. You have the ATS. IDSA is Infectious Diseases Society of America. You have the ATS, which is American Thoracic Society. You have the NIH. You have the CDC. They all put out their guidelines regularly. And, and doctors here use this all the time. In India, ICMR guidelines or the Ministry of Health guidelines, they have a huge uptake. People follow them by the T. But the problem is that these guidelines are, are kind of misguiding. Doctor, could you lastly speak to us a little bit about uh, oxygen treatment? There is, uh, as you know, a lot of panic in India with a lot of uh, patients struggling to find oxygen when they need it and a lot of panic buying as well of oxygen cylinders going on. Could you speak to us a little bit about when it is needed and why? Yeah. Um, so when is oxygen needed? So I think the first step is, is to know what the oxygen level is. It does not depend on what the biomarkers are. It does not depend what the CT scan shows. It, it depends only on one thing. That is, what is the oxygen level on the oximeter? Okay. If on the oximeter, the oxygen level is more than 93%, then you're good without oxygen. If the oxygen level is less than 93% or 92% on the oximeter, that is the time when you start needing oxygen. Uh, now, the caveat to this is that you should have an oximeter, and we know oximeters' prices have gone up. Not everyone can afford them. So then you start looking at people symptomatically. You see if they're very short of breath, then you encourage them to go to the hospital. 
in the hospital they can check their oxygen levels and the if if again it is less than 92% then only you need oxygen if it is more than 92% 93% you don't need oxygen right thank you so much for speaking to us today dr anupagarwal thank you thank you it was my pleasure in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon